Good evening, everyone. Just want to bring your, to your attention something that's coming up very soon. Uh, you'll see a little card on your seat there. If you could grab that, it's called Christianity Explored. I just wanted to give you uh, um, a heads up on this. So here at, church, at CB Church, uh, we do evangelism. We tell people the good news about Jesus. Why do we do that? Three quick reasons. Heaven commands it. We'll go through these slides quickly. Heaven commands it. Hell demands it. Love compels it. That's why we do it. Next slide, please. Christianity is growing in significantly around the world, right? Uh, it's not dying. It is, in fact, expanding, but just not in Australia, right? If you go to Africa, the gospel is growing. Here in Australia, it is declining. Did you know that only 8% of people in Australian churches have become Christian in the last five years? That's a very slow trickle here in Australia. But there's some good news. There's some good news. Uh, the most recent data done by a company called McCrindle showed this, that Australian attitudes towards Christianity are these, that one in four are warm towards hearing the gospel. You may not you may think it's much less than that, but actually it's one in four. It does mean that one in four are cool and one in eight are neutral, but one in four are warm. Next slide, please. The stats tell us that non-Christians' openness to exploring religion is that 10% are very interested and 13% would consider. It does mean that 77% are unlikely, but 23% will actually be warm if you tell them about the gospel, all right? That, that's an important statistic for us to, to understand and to appreciate. 23%, one in four people, will actually be warm if you talk about the gospel. Next slide, please. And the top attractors to religion and spirituality, this is the most recent research, is that 16%, uh, the reason they're attracted to hearing about the gospel is that they see people who live out a genuine faith, and that's where you come in, all right? The biggest attraction to the gospel is you and I living out our faith. And so, when you invite someone to come and hear about Jesus, when you invite someone to come to church or come to Christianity Explored, your life, in that, your uh, um, influence in that person's life will be the biggest attractor. Next slide, please. That's where you come in. So, in Super Church, we have a modest a modest goal for the next year, next slide, to see 20 people come to know the Lord. Now, this is one of our tools whereby we can see that happen. Just one tool that we have to see that happen. It's a course called Christianity Explored. And what it is, is on a Tuesday night, over six Tuesdays for about an hour and a half, we have three elements, good food, a good talk, and good conversation. Uh, we invite people in, they're our guests, we make them feel very warm, we make them feel very welcome, and we introduce them to Jesus, right? We introduce them. They're our guests. That's part of the team. Next slide, you'll see some of the people that were at the last event. It's a very warm, it's a very inviting time, very easy time, and if 24% of our population are warm to hearing the gospel, they may well come. Now, these are the cardhold facts. Next the cold hard facts, sorry, our goal, for 20 people to become Christian at CB Church in the next 12 months. That's a modest, I think that's a modest goal. Next slide. One in four people who come to Christianity Explored become a Christian in some studies, right? 
So one in four will become a Christian. One in ten who are invited will come. Next slide. One in ten who are invited will come. Now, if you want to have uh, 20 people there, if you want to see 20 people saved in a year, you're going to need to have how many at Christianity Explored if one in four are saved? 80. And if one in ten are, who are invited come, we're going to have to invite 800 people. So next slide. Our goal is for 20 people to become Christian at CB Church the next 12 months. We will need 80 people to come to Christianity Explored. And therefore, next slide, 800 people will be in, need to be invited. All right? That's just to see 20 people come to the Lord through this tool. So uh, obviously this cannot be done by one person. We, are, we, on, we as a church are on mission to reach our community. So 800 people need to be invited to see 20 people saved through this tool. And so we are going to be running this course. You can see on the bottom of your card there from the 25th of October to the 29th of November. So it runs on a Tuesday night from 7.15 dinner to about 9 o'clock. And so we're going to be starting in about six weeks. We want to give you a bit of um, leeway, lead, uh, lead up to this event so that you can be praying about and who you might want to invite. And I'm praying about who, I might, who, I, who can I invite. And when, when you're praying about it, you become more deliberate about it. Oh, I'm having this conversation with this person. I'm walking the dog with someone. I'm, I'm getting to see them a few times a week. I might just invite them, you know, because one in four are going to be warm. Maybe this is one of them. Who knows? So please uh, pray about this. Please see who you might be able to invite in your life. And let's pray as a church that we might see 20 people come to know the Lord in the next year. Thank you. This week's Bible reading is taken from Isaiah 35, verses 1 to 7. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. Near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool with five porches. In Hebrew, it is called Besatha. A large crowd of sick people were lying on the porches. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. A man was there who had been sick for 38 years. Jesus saw him lying there 
and he knew that the man had been sick for such a long time. Do you want to get well? Sir, I don't have anyone here to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm trying to get in, somebody else gets there first. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. The day this happened was a Sabbath, so the Jewish authorities told the man who had been healed, This is a Sabbath, and it is against our law for you to carry your mat. The man who made me well told me to pick up my mat and walk. Who is the man who told you to do this? But the man who had been healed did not know who Jesus was. For there was a crowd in that place, and Jesus had slipped away. Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago what medical technology still can't do today, and that is fix a damaged spinal cord. Paralysis from a damaged spinal cord has got to be one of the most devastating conditions that someone can experience. And we have our own personal experience in this church. And medical technology is powerless to reverse it. If anyone ever does find a cure, their name will be up in lights, won't it? They will be the talk of the town. They will win the Nobel Prize. They'll be given every prize. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus spoke and bam, this paralyzed man was healed. In the Gospel according to John, Jesus' miracles are called signs. And John tells us that when we see one of Jesus' signs, we shouldn't just say, wow, look at that sign. But what does that sign point to? The important thing about a sign is not the sign itself, but its significance. If we see a sign, but we ignore what the sign is pointing to, then we literally have missed the point. 
We know that in everyday life. Do you think this guy saw the significance of the sign? The next one. Right? The, the sign was pointing to something and yet that person ignored it. We've got one more. The important thing about a sign is not the sign itself, but what the sign points to. Jesus' miracle was jaw-dropping, wasn't it? It was breathtaking. But the true meaning goes much further than just the healing of this man's paralysis. Many people who witnessed this sign failed to recognize the true meaning behind the sign, which had eternal consequences for their lives. Do you see the true meaning behind this sign? Well, we're going to see that this morning, this evening. Do, we, do you see the true meaning behind this sign? Before we do that, we're going to pray. I'm going to lead us in prayer. We're going to pray for the kids club coming up. We're going to pray for Christianity Explored. And I'm going to give you a few moments to pray for those things on your heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for all that you do for us. We thank you for the gospel and the gospel that changes lives, that breaks bondages, that sets people free. We do pray, Lord, for the upcoming kids program. We thank you for Iron and for Melanie Tan who are coordinating this kids club. We pray that you give them wisdom, energy. We pray for volunteers, Lord, as the harvest is plenty but the workers are few. We do pray for those remaining positions that they would be filled. We pray for the children that they will come to know Jesus at a young age and live life to the fullest as God intended. We, we pray, Lord, for all the parents that they will bring up their children in the way of the Lord and those families that don't yet know you but come to our week, we ask, Lord, that they might come into a relationship with you. So we commit that week to you. Father, we pray for our upcoming Christianity Explored course and we thank you for those who are volunteering. We, already, we pray, Lord, ahead of time that you might be calling people to you, that you might be pleased to use this course to make your name known. We ask, Lord, that you might give each one of us opportunities to invite people to come and hear the good news. And we know, Lord, that one in four Australians are warm, so please, Lord, direct us to those warm hearts that they might accept our invitation. We, we pray, Lord, that you would do your work powerfully during this course. I'll give you a few moments now just to bring those prayers close to your heart, to the Lord. Father, we bring our prayers to you, large and small. We bring them to the, your feet. And we trust, Lord, that you will answer them as you see fit, according to your will. And we pray that you would be with us this evening. Lord, we have this wonderful word before us. Please let us see the true meaning behind Jesus' sign and let it shape the way that we live in response in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand and we are going to read the beginning of John chapter 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. 
Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Please be seated. If you have your Bibles with you, please open up at John chapter 5, otherwise we'll have the text behind me. Verse 2, Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which means house of mercy, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades, or in other words, porches. It was common in the academic world in the 19th century to ridicule the Bible, to say that it was all made up, it was legend, it was a myth. Most scholars dismissed this miracle as an unhistorical literary creation because there was no pool that had ever been excavated in archaeological discoveries that, have these, that had five porches suggesting a five-sided pool. Very strange thing. But in the late 19th century, an excavation site near the temple found the remains of a double pool separated by a gangway. We have a picture of it here. It would have looked something like this. So these uh, four covered porches or colonnades surrounded the four the two pools plus a colonnade that went over the gangway in the middle, giving a five-sided, five-covered colonnade. And as the Bible says, next slide, as the Bible says, it was near the sheep gate. You can see there the sheep gate, which was a, a hole in the, or an opening in the side of the, of the temple wall where sheep, after they'd been washed in this pool, were taken to be sacrificed. So it would have looked something like the next picture that shows us, something like that. Over and over again, people have disparaged the Bible as being historically unreliable, only to find in subsequent archaeological discoveries that the Bible's descriptions are actually totally accurate. And today, every historian in every university department in every city in the world Right? In every university, in every city in the world, attests to the fact that the Bible is by far and away the most historically reliable book of antiquity that we have. And according to a science called textual criticism, we can be 
I'm 100% sure that what we have in our hands is what was originally written. They are the facts, and that should give us great confidence as we read God's Word. We read in verse 3, Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. There was a superstitious belief that this pool had healing properties. Uh, Occasionally, the water bubbled up from below, and uh, probably from an underwater spring. And people superstitiously believed that this was an angel that was stirring the water and that the first person in after the disturbance could be healed. And that's why all the sick would line up around the pool and as soon as the, the pool bubbled up, they would race each other in. One who had been there, who, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Which seems like a bit of a redundant question. Of course I want to get well, but I think what Jesus is saying is, do you want to get well? Because I can actually do something about it. The person who can actually do something about it is standing in front of you right now. But the guy didn't get it. He thought that Jesus was offering to carry him into the pool. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me in the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, this man had likely spent his entire adult life lying by the pool, waiting to get healed, eking out an existence by begging, each day expiring in hopelessness for 38 years. On this day, however, his life was about to change because Jesus was going to intervene. Amen? Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Now, I'm sure the man looked at him in disbelief. And he's, you know, uh, what are you talking about? Look at me. Do you need your eyes healed? How can I get up? That is not possible. But faster than a toupee flying off in a cyclone, the man, verse 9, was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Just as God commanded the world into existence by his powerful word, Jesus commands that paralyzed man be healed. And bam, that man is healed of his spinal paralysis. 38 years he'd been lying there and he was healed. After 38 years, his legs would have been completely weak and atrophied, but he doesn't need any rehab. He doesn't need any uh, physio. He's instantaneously and completely healed. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is a Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. It's like, who am I going to listen to? You or the guy that can walk around and do miracles? The Jewish people were different from the cultures around them in two important ways. Firstly, they believed that there was one God only. The Romans and the Greeks, they believed there were many gods. There was a God who controlled the sky, a God who controlled the ocean, a God who controlled the crops. The Jews believed there was one God who controlled everything. Secondly, The second difference was that the Jewish people 
obeyed the Torah, the Old Testament. And the Torah said that on the seventh day, you must rest. It is a Sabbath. You must rest from your work. Here's Jesus, who's a Jew, claiming to be the one true God and healing on the Sabbath. So how do you think that went down with the Jewish leaders? They asked him, verse 12, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? In the Jewish leader's eyes, a serious crime had been committed and they weren't about to let it go. When the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, when they talk about the Sabbath and resting on the Sabbath, it means rest from what you are employed to do the other six days of the week. So if you are a baker on the sixth day, rest from being a baker and take time to remember the Lord. But working on the Sabbath had become such a contentious issue amongst the Jewish leaders. Uh, in the Jewish rabbinic tradition, uh, they had become obsessed with the Sabbath and they had made this mountain of man-made regulations to go with God's law. For example, they decided that if you carry something inside your house on the Sabbath, that was acceptable because that was necessary. But if you carried something outside your house, that was unacceptable because that was work. If you carried something inside the house above your shoulders, that was not acceptable because it must be very heavy for you to have to carry it above your shoulders. And so that was work, and so that was unacceptable. And so here's this man who is healed. He carries his mat outside the house on the Sabbath, and the Jewish leaders say, hey, 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 wrong day of the week, buddy. You can't do that. You've got to lie back down on your mat for 24 more hours, and then you can get up and take your mat home. 38 years the guy's been there, and they quibble about what day of the week he can carry his mat home. There are still people today in churches that insist that other people keep the rules that they keep and they look down on those that don't, even though they're not in the Bible. And the Bible calls that, or we call that legalism. Right? And the Bible warns us against legalism. The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. I think there's something worse there he's referring to is eternal judgment. Jesus is saying, I healed you so that in response you might now live a life that's pleasing to God. Being holy is more important than being healthy. In God's economy, being holy is more important than being healthy. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Now, the Jewish authorities, interesting, they never once questioned the fact that actually Jesus did the miracle. That wasn't in dispute. But they were obsessed with the fact that he'd broken their man-made rules. This miracle should have substantially changed their view of who Jesus was. He's just done a jaw-dropping miracle. It should have been enough to authenticate his claims to divinity, but instead they just try and discredit his claim, discredit his miracle. Now, the Jewish scholars of the time debated the question, does God work on the Sabbath? 
right? Which is a pretty a kind of esoteric kind of question, but uh, it has some significance for us. So they said, does God work on the Sabbath? Some people said, well, no. Uh, some people said, yes, he does work on the Sabbath, right? And some people said, no, he doesn't. Those who said, some said, no, he doesn't work on the Sabbath, otherwise he would be a lawbreaker. Others said, well, hang on, if he rests on the seventh day, then who keeps the universe running while he's resting? Right? It would fall apart. Their conclusion was that God does keep working on the Sabbath, but he cannot be uh, charged with violating the Sabbath rule because, one, the entire universe is his domain, and so he can't carry something outside of his domain. And secondly, his stature is so great, he cannot lift anything higher than himself. That was uh, their conclusion. Jesus picks up on that, and he says in verse 17, In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. He's saying, if it's okay for God to work on the Sabbath, like you say it is, then it's okay for me, because I am the son of God. I am the son of the father. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Right? You, we saw that last week. You can't go around saying that. In their eyes, that's blasphemy. And we saw last week, well, it's not blasphemy to say you're the son of God if you really are the son of God. In fact, it would be blasphemy to say you weren't the son of God. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus accepts the charge, yet yes, I am making myself equal with God, but he's not claiming to be a second God. He's claiming to be the son of the Father. Not polytheism, many gods, but this unique Christian form of monotheism. And it's this claim that really leads to his execution down the track. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. In the first century, the, uh, the son learnt the trade of the father. And so Jesus would have done that. He would have learned the trade of carpentry from his father, Joseph. Jesus uses this relationship dynamic to explain his relationship with the father. So we've got a picture of here of an apprentice. A son who is an apprentice in his father's trade does what he sees his father doing and the father shows him all that he does. In the same way, God the father discloses to Jesus, his son, all that he does and the son does whatever the father shows him. If the father shows the son all that he does, and if the son does all that the father shows him, then the son is therefore a perfect reflection of who the father is, right? That's why Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And the son who can do what the father does, he'll paralyze people, he must be just as divine as the father. That's Jesus' defense. He's saying, why are you having a problem with me healing on the Sabbath? When I'm doing what only the Father can do. So what does that say about who I am? That's the significance behind the sign is I must be the son of the Father if I can do what only God can do. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. 
For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Some people think that they can honour God while dishonouring Jesus. But if you withhold the honour due the Son, it dishonours the Father. I'll give you an example. There was a Christian guy called Rico, and he's a rugby player. And he was about to run on to play a game. And he sees on the sideline this guy who is just the biggest guy he has ever seen in his life. He makes Arnold Schwarzenegger look like a catwalk model. All right? And this guy on the sideline is holding his baby son in his arms so tenderly. He can't take his eyes off him. And Rico thinks, oh, I'm so glad that guy is not playing today because he would just destroy us. Anyway, the whistle goes for the beginning of the game and Rico starts to play and the guy on the sideline hands his child over to his wife and then runs on the field and absolutely pulls Rico limb from limb, just destroys the team. Whistle goes to halftime, he runs back off, takes his baby, holds his baby tenderly on the sideline, can't take his eyes off him. Whistle goes to second half, runs back on and absolutely destroys the, the other team, right? Pulling them limb from limb. Now, Rico knew one thing for sure. You would be a fool to get between that father and his son, right? You would be asking for trouble. In the same way, how you treat God's son is the most important thing to God. If anything will make the father angry, it is someone dishonoring his son. You see, Muslims honor Jesus as a prophet, but they don't honor him as God. And so they dishonor Jesus, and therefore they dishonor the Father. Uh, Baha'is honor Jesus as a, one of God's messengers, but they don't honor him as God, and so they dishonor Jesus, and therefore they dishonor the Father. Agnostics, atheists, secularists, they honor Jesus as a great teacher, but they don't honor him as God, which means they dishonor him and therefore they dishonor the Father. Those who downgrade Jesus to less than divine are rejecting God himself. To speak of a connection with God that is divorced from Jesus Christ is totally false. Uh, I'll give you an example. If you, we know when you travel overseas, probably haven't done it for a while, some of you, but if you travel overseas, you know how annoyed you get when you get to your hotel room and you can't plug in your phone or your laptop because you haven't got the right connector. Right? Your plug doesn't fit in to the socket. Uh, what do you need? An adapter. You need an adapter, right? Uh, hotels don't often give these out anymore because people like me forget to give them back. But, so you've got to remember to take one with you or buy one at the airport. Now, of course, with an adapter, you can then plug in to the power source, can't you? In the same way, if you want to plug into God, you've got to plug into Jesus. Right? To plug into God, you've got to plug into Jesus. Uh, many people of, dif of different religions think they know God. They think they're plugged into God, 
But if they don't plug into Jesus, they can't plug into God. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, no Christ, let's begin with a K, can know Christ, no life. If you know Christ, you will know life. But no Christ, no life. Verse 24, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. See, Christianity is both inclusive and exclusive, isn't it? Christianity is completely inclusive. It says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're here today and you've never called on the name of the Lord, you know, you have to, you know that you're a sinner, you need forgiveness. Jesus says, come to me. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. Come to me. It's inclusive. Everyone can come. But it's exclusive. You've got to come through Jesus. You've got to plug in to Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's very politically incorrect to say that today. I, I was at the community coffee morning this morning, and I was having a chat. It was a, a Muslim there and another man there who um, uh, didn't like the idea that Jesus was the only way. And they, uh, and they said, well, Christians are arrogant to say that Jesus is the only way. Uh, and my reply was, well, I think I would be more it would be more arrogant if I said I'd known better than Jesus. That would be more arrogant to say, actually, I think Jesus is wrong. Now, Jesus says, no Christ, no life. No Christ, no life. The, Jesus is profoundly divisive. The very nature of the claims he makes forces us to make a judgment about him. There is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. He claims, his claims give you no option apart from accepting him and giving your life to him wholeheartedly or rejecting him and living at enmity with him. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This is a really interesting verse. The Father and the Son are equally divine, but their relationship is not reciprocal, not completely reciprocal. The Father sends the Son and the Son goes. The Son never sends the Father. The Father commands the Son. The Son obeys the Father. The Father never obeys the Son and the Son never obeys the Father. The Father gives life to the Son. Another way of saying it is that the Father begets the Son. Uh, beget is a kind of like an old-fashioned word, but it's a word. It was originally a Greek verb which referred to the father's role in bringing a child into the world. Right? We know what a, a woman's role, but the father's role is that he begets the child. So in eternity past, the father begat the son, gave life to the son, and Jesus is the only begotten son. Right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Do not be amazed at this. These are the final two verses, 28 and 29. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice, that's Jesus' voice, and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, 
and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Do you hear what it's saying? All the people who have ever lived will be raised from the dead by Jesus. Every Australian and every Malaysian and every Singaporean and every Korean and every American and every person from every nation will be raised by Jesus Christ from the dead. He will raise Adolf Hitler from the dead. He will raise the Queen from the dead. He will raise Muhammad. He will raise Buddha. He will raise uh, you and I. And we will all stand before Jesus and all the other billions that have lived, ever lived, we will all be raised by Jesus and we'll stand before him. Jesus lets no one go out of existence, right? When people die in this uh, in, in their body, he doesn't let them go out of existence, but he's going to give life to their buried bones and their scattered ashes, and he's going to bring them to life. That is the glory of Christ. In the beginning, nothingness obeyed at the Son's directive, and at the end, scattered ashes and buried bones and decomposed bodies are going to, at the directive of the Son, come to life. And we will face him. And those who have done what is good. Do we have one more slide? Those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. It's two ways. Because what we do in life is the evidence of whether our faith is genuine or counterfeit. No Christ, no life. But no Christ, no life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word which takes us into the very Godhead. It gives us a glimpse, a window into the, to the inner workings of the Father and the Son, Lord, we're so privileged to be able to look through that window into the divine majesty of God and the workings of the Father and the Son. Lord, we thank you that we get to see that. And Lord, we don't want to just look at the sign of a Jesus sign and, and say, wow, that was an amazing sign, but we want to see its significance. You are the Son of the Father. For those who are here tonight and you have not yet Put your trust in Jesus as your Savior, as the King, as God in the flesh. Jesus is the one that gives life, eternal life. Without him, there is no life. Give your life to him today. I'll give you an opportunity right now to do that. You might want to pray in the quietness of your own heart along with me. Dear God, I now see that you are, I now see that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God. I'm sorry for my sins and I put my trust in you. If that's you, as Jesus said, you've gone from death to life because Jesus is the one that gives life. For those of us who are Christian, Jesus says to us a number of things. Being holy is more important than being healthy. 
Do you believe that? Our holiness is so important to the Lord, the way that we live for Him. And have you heard Jesus' words? Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. What we do in life is the evidence of whether our belief is genuine or counterfeit. I pray for each one of us, Lord, that we would live a, a life that shows evidence of our salvation, that our belief would be genuine, that it would be seen in the way that we live each day, every moment of the day. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We ask, Lord, that we might meditate on him, be enamored by him, and live for him each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.